Today's scripture comes from Acts 13, 1 to 3. Now there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Serene, Mananen, a long-life friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. You may be seated. All right, as you're seated, let me pray. Father, we ask you as we do look into this text today that we would see more of your love for us, that we would see more of your plan and purpose for us, and that we would acknowledge the way that your spirit has drawn us into this place to worship you, but also, Lord, the way that you have sent us out into the rest of our lives day by day to make the fame and deeds of you known. And so we ask you, God, that you would help us to conceive of all of that as we sit under this text and as we uh, look through this over the next few minutes. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, today is the second Sunday of Advent, and uh, talk about this around here once in a while, I guess probably annually, as it so uh, turns out. The Advent is God's annual stubborn reminder that the world is not as it should be, that we live in between the arrival of Jesus, his incarnation that we celebrate around Christmas, but also that we look to his return. And so we celebrate in faith with great expectation and hope the return of Christ. And we here live in the tension in between these times. And so we celebrate this in the season of Advent. Today we're going to depart from our Advent series uh, that you had kicked off here last Sunday. I was in Kitsilano preaching. Fred was here, walked you through the genealogy of Jesus and Matthew's gospel. We will continue in Matthew's gospel for the next two weeks following. But today we're going to be in Acts 13 and then beyond. And we're going to be looking a little bit about this sent and sending campaign that we've launched, that we launched last Sunday in preparation for the planting of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, in September of 2019. And so we will look at this text, and this is where we're headed. I want to read it for you one more time, because I I want you to notice a few things in it that I'll explain as we go. Acts 13, verses 1 to 3, it says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now, Acts 13 pairs really well with the study that we've been in, talking about the letter that Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia. We've been studying Galatians, and we actually see that this is the beginning of the mission to the Galatian churches, the Galatian region. This is where it begins. They started in Antioch. You can see on the map behind me that Antioch, who were all in on mission and church planting, is the sending place from uh, from which Paul and Barnabas came. And so they laid hands on them, they fasted, they prayed, and they sent them. They were the sending point where they start their journey. They head out in the power of the Holy Spirit with the support of their sending church. They make their way to the island of Cyprus. They go across Cyprus. They go back onto the continent at Perga. From there, they travel into the southern part of the Roman province of Galatia, uh, beginning in Pisidian Antioch. And you can say that's the second Antioch that we've had listed. Yes, there's Antioch in Syria. Then there's Pisidian Antioch. It's because there was a megalomaniac named Antiochus who liked to name cities after himself. And so we've got two Antiochs in our text already, or in our, on our map already. 
Paul gets up in the Jewish synagogue in Antioch and he preaches the gospel on the Sabbath and he preaches about the forgiveness of sins and the salvation that can be found in Jesus. And just like everywhere else Paul goes, there's a reaction. Some come to believe and some people freak out. Standard reaction wherever they go and preach the gospel. They move on to Iconium because they got driven out of the city of Pisidian Antioch. They move on to Iconium. Uh, They are in Acts 13 and 14. It tells us that they go to Iconium and the same thing happens. Some people respond to Jesus. Some people freak out and get angry with them. So they move on to Lystra. In Lystra, they see this crippled man healed. They continue to preach the gospel. What happens is those people who were angry in Antioch and angry in Iconium, they catch up to Paul, Barnabas. They catch up to them in Lystra. And they don't only plot to kill him at that point. They actually stone him and leave him outside the city for dead. Now, apparently Paul, resilient, hard to kill, gets up, dusts himself off, says, well, onward we go. Goes to the city of Derby, preaches the gospel in Derby. This is what it says, Acts 14, uh, verses 21 to 23, about what happened there. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, many tribulations is how we must enter the kingdom of God. means a lot more when the guy's still got bruises on his body from being stoned. Just, just notice that. Verse 23 says, they lay, When they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Pisidian Antioch, it's all modern-day Turkey. They go and evangelize these cities. They make disciples in these cities. Paul has his assassination plotted in one of these cities. They actually try to kill him in one of these cities. And then he goes back through all of these cities. Established churches in all of these cities. Appointed elders over all of these churches in these cities. And then they go home to their sending church in Antioch. And this is what it says. Acts 14, verses 24 to 28. When they passed through Pisidia, came to Pamphylia... And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. Now here's what I want you to notice. When the church in Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas on this journey into the southern part of the Galatian province that they might preach the gospel where the gospel had not yet been preached, that they may establish gospel outposts where there were no gospel outposts established as of yet. Notice, who was involved? Acts chapter 13, verses 2 and 3. says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So who was involved? Well, we see the Spirit of God speaking to his church, saying, you should send these guys off to the work that I've called them to. And they say, obediently, sounds good. Here's how they respond. With fasting and prayer, they lay hands on Paul and Barnabas, and they send them off. This is an idea coming from the mind of God, born of the Spirit, alive in the church, that the church responds to with fasting and prayer and faith, and they send them off to go and accomplish that which God had appointed for them to do. It was the whole church. Some were sent, and some did the sending, but everybody was involved. 
When they came home, who did they want to share the testimony of God's faithfulness with? Who did they want to share the testimony of how people had turned in faith and repented of sin and come to Jesus? Who do they want to share that with? Well, it says that they gathered the whole church together. Verse 27 says, when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. It was the whole sending church. Some are sent, some do the sending, but everyone is involved in the missional work of establishing new gospel preaching churches. Now, Paul and Barnabas, when we read in scripture, they seem a little crazy to me anyways. They seem a little crazy. They take off, they get on a boat, which is not necessarily safe in the first century. They sail to Cyprus. They go across Cyprus. They then make way back to the mainland. They travel into hostile territory where they know it's going to be hostile territory. They've got people chasing them, threatening to kill them. Paul actually gets snagged by them at some point, gets stoned, gets back up, goes, that's fine, and keeps moving on. That seems a little weird, does it not? Right? Like some of you were like, it's raining this morning. I don't know. I might just serve the Lord with my cup of coffee here. So warm. No, it seems strange. Here's what I want you to notice. They're not radical loners who just ventured off into the great unknown on their own. They were sent missionary church planters who had the backing of a church at home, who I'm sure had a church at home fasting and praying for their provision and safety and success and fruitfulness in the preaching of the gospel. They were not by themselves. They'd been sent by those who did the sending so that the fame and deeds of God would be made known in their day. So when we seek to plant more churches, send missionaries, do all kinds of different things, we are doing so so that the fame and deeds of God might be made known in our day. This is what God is calling us to as a people. But here's the question. What compels them to go and do that? On two levels. What compels the church to take two of its best and brightest leaders and send them off in harm's way? What compels them to do that? Because surely it would have been nice to just have them stay around. Well, the word of the Lord, the faith of the people, they respond. What compels Paul and Barnabas to continue on? And all the difficulties that we read later on in the letters of Paul, all the difficulties that he endures, what, what continues to compel them? It's Jesus. They have had a real encounter with the real risen Jesus. The church says, well, we don't own you. We send you. And those who are sent, they stand there and they say, Lord, wherever you lead, we'll go. Wherever you call us to, whatever you call us to do and to venture off into, we'll go. What keeps a person motivated to do mission when people are plotting your assassination and stoning you and leaving you for dead? It's a vision of Jesus that trumps all the things going on in your life. It says, my comfort's not the center and the source of all of my joy. Why would generation after generation of Christian missionaries for the last 2,000 years go out into contexts like this? It's because they have captured a snippet of the glory of God. When you come to Jesus, something happens. It 
It turns your upside-down life right-side-up. It turns you from an enemy of God into a friend of God. When you receive the gospel, it transforms you from a rebel into a worshiper. When you come to know Jesus, you can mark generally on the timeline of your life the then and the now. You can say there was a point when everything changed for me. And if we see Jesus as he truly is and we worship him as he truly is, not just on Sunday morning when we're led by the band, but in all of our life and everything that we do, we are worshipers with our whole life. If we see who he really is, we see him seated on the throne, high and lifted up, exalted. If we see him and we learn to see him in his glory, we can acknowledge that we've been invited into something magnificent, that there's a role for us to play. I've been meditating over the last couple of weeks on the passages of Revelation 4 and 5, this heavenly throne room vision that John has. What a compelling vision to see Jesus, the lamb who was slain there beside God Almighty, enthroned in glory. And you see the response of those who see him in his glory, and it shows us that something is different. Revelation 4 verse 1 says, After this I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. And so John is ushered into this vision. And he sees something differently. Not seeing like seeing, but seeing. Let me read Revelation 4. I want to show you what he saw. Verses 2 to 11. They're not going to come up on the screen for you because I want you to hear them. You might even want to try and envision what John sees. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne... On each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. First living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. The four living creatures, each of them with six eyes, six wings, are, are full of eyes all around them within. Day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Do 
In a world that was not so saturated with image as ours, where there was no CGI movie, there was no IMAX experience, there was no video game console with millions of dollars invested in the images that you would see. This was otherworldly and inspired awe. Let me show you the response of those who see God and the Lamb as they truly are because there's a progressive unfolding happens in chapter 4 and 5 of Revelation and I want us to see it. I want us to behold it. What if there was more in your life, in your relationship with God? What if you didn't limit his power? What if, what if there wasn't kind of a governor on your understanding of who God was? What if those were blown off? What if we saw him as he is? The four living creatures see him as he is and they cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And when they cry out in praise, seeing God for who he is as he's seated on the throne, in the midst of the lightning and the thunder, 24 elders fall down and they praise him. And this is what they say. They say, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. And then in chapter five, we see this built out further. When the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fall on their faces before God and they sing this new song to the lamb. They sing, worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals for you were slain by your blood you ransomed people for god from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our god and they shall reign on the earth and then when that happens the heavenly host all gather in and the says that the four living creatures and the 24 elders are then joined by myriad and myriad of angels, 10,000 by 10,000, and singing with one voice, they sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then when that happens, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea join into the chorus and they sing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. It's a progressive unfolding of worship to the one who is worthy. It involves the heavenly host and the entire cosmos seeing him as he is. The four and the 24 and the myriads and the thousands, all of creation see and respond. Verses 9 and 10 of chapter 5 says, They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And... You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. It says that God's people are made a kingdom and priests, that corporately we are made a kingdom, and that individually that make up that corporate, that we are priests, priests unto God. So the church of the worthy lamb is a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And we are called to reign with him in his glory as a kingdom of priests. And part of that priestly role in our lives as followers of Jesus 
is to mediate God's goodness to us, to those who don't yet see him as he is. It's part of our role, is to take the God that we know, who we have glimpsed in his glory, and to mediate his goodness to the world around us, to those who don't yet know him. It's nothing less than the consequential effect of the gospel at work in our lives. It's the right side up of the upside down. When we meet Jesus, our upside down lives get set right side up and it changes something. If you meet Jesus, the missionary efforts of the church over the last 2,000 years, they make a lot of sense. And you see people willing to lay their lives down. It just makes a lot of sense if this is the God you serve. Because we want more people to get in on it. When you meet Jesus, you realize that the center and and comfort in your life is not your comfort. The center of your life is not your success or fill in the blanks. The center is Jesus, our crucified and risen king, enthroned in glory. When we're captivated by the glory of God, when we see him for who he is, high and lifted up, exalted in the heavenly throne room, we then worship with all of our lives. And part of that is this, which he calls us to in Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Stop there for a second. But some doubted. When you wake up today and you maybe are not at a high point in your faith, you might be at a low point in your faith, and you think, does God even accept me in the doubt that I have right now? Look, we all ebb and flow. We are at high places in our faith, and then there's times that we're at low places in our faith. And that's when we actually come in here and we borrow the faith of some of the people around us, and we say, I'm low in my faith. Would you help me? Can I have some of yours today? Would you pray for me? Okay, these people, the 11, the faithful disciples who had walked with Jesus, who watched him crucified, who are now seeing him risen in glory. It says that some of them doubted. Do you think God can handle your doubts today? Probably. Verse 18. Then Jesus, that's, that's not what my sermon's about. It's okay. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I've walked us through Revelation 4 and 5 and just shown you this Matthew 28, 16 to 20, because I want to say this. Part of our role in the kingdom of God is to serve as a Revelation 5 worshiping community who are active in Matthew 28 missional discipleship. Part of our role in the kingdom of God is to serve as a worshiping church, a Revelation 5 worshiping church, who've seen and glimpsed the glory of God, who understand that this is who he is as he's revealed himself to us. But also to serve in Matthew 28 missional discipleship where we take the message of the gospel to the world around us. And here's how we believe we're called to walk that out as a community in Vancouver. The vision of Christ City Church is to establish a network of neighborhood churches that are large enough to meet the unique demands of urban ministry and small enough to maintain community. The vision of Christ City Church 
is to establish a network of neighborhood churches that are large enough to meet the unique demands of urban ministry, yet small enough to maintain community. Okay, uh, how big is too big? I don't know. We haven't figured that out yet. Probably South Van location, three gatherings is too big. It, it inhibits community. Um, we'd like to send a whole group of you to go plant a new church. Don't worry, we've got a plan for that too. It's convenient. How small is too small? I, I don't know, but it needs to be able to meet the demands of doing ministry in Vancouver. It's a unique place to live. It's a unique place to be a follower of Jesus. When we talk about mission and vision, I want to be very clear about something. The mission of the church is revealed to us in Scripture, and we don't get to mess with that. The mission of the church, doesn't matter how you say it, doesn't matter how you communicate it, every different church is going to have a different way that they talk about it. But the mission of the church is universal. I read it to you in Matthew 28. This is one of the ways you can say, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. That's the Great Commission. That's the mission of Jesus' church. That's the mission of the church on every continent on this planet through all the thousands of years that it's been going on. That's the mission of the church. And you go even on the uninhabited content. Sure, if you want to go to the continent that doesn't have any people but has a lot of penguins, still go preach the gospel there. That's fine. You're going to find some scientists all bundled up in an you know, Antarctic hut. I don't know how it works. I don't know anybody who wants to go there on mission, but we'd probably send you. That's all I'm saying. You don't get to mess with the mission of the church. That's universal. Every single church for 2,000 years lives out the universal mission of Jesus. Go make disciples. Here, around here, we talk about we're, we're called to worship God, make disciples. We live to create opportunities for people to encounter Jesus. Some churches say our call is to love God and love people. Uh, the church that I was part of before we got sent out to plant this, make Jesus known. That's fantastic. All of those are good. They're all saying the same thing because we actually all share the universal mission given by Jesus. Now, the vision's different. Vision is a unique, contextual unfolding of that global mission. Does that make sense? The mission when I was over in Vietnam, that's the same mission that those church planters there have. They've got the same mission as we do. Go and make disciples. Baptize people, teach them to obey my commands. They've got the same thing going on. But the way that they're employing that, the way that they're going about that is very different. It's unique compared to here. The vision that God has given them is very different. I met uh, rural church planters in the northern, I don't know, jungle of Vietnam. And I met urban church planters in Vietnam who are doing very similar things to what we're trying to accomplish here. It's because we all have the same mission lived out in a different context. It shows us that the vision of the church can be unique. We believe that this is how God has led us as a church to live out his mission here in Vancouver as a little sliver of the kingdom of God that we are as Christ City. The driving force behind that is that we think more people should meet Jesus. That would be a fantastic place to say amen. We, we think more people should meet Jesus. I don't know, maybe, maybe you know him. The 650,000 people in Vancouver proper and a very generous estimate of a survey and a study that was conducted last year and the year before says that about 30,000 of them are followers of Jesus, meaning that 620,000 people in our city are currently headed toward an eternity separated from Christ. We need to be about the mission of Jesus. 
You say, well, I understand the mission, the universal global mission of Jesus Church. I hear the vision of planting a network of neighborhood churches, but why a network of neighborhood churches? Why a network of churches that are grounded in the life and community of their own neighborhood, on mission in their own neighborhood, serving one another for the benefit of the city in their own neighborhood? Well, look at this picture. I've used this metaphor before, so forgive me for those of you who've been around for the last three years. This is a picture of hydrangea flowers. Hydrangea flowers are nice. I don't know much about biology or botanics, but here's what I do know. That was a joke. But I actually don't know much about it, just to be clear. Hydrangea flowers... You can take flowers with the identical genetic makeup or seeds with the identical genetic makeup and you can put four or five pots right in front of you and the seeds can be planted into those pots but the color of the flower will be determined not by the seed. The color of the flower is determined by the pH level of the soil. The pH level of the soil determines whether you get a pink flower, a blue flower, a white flower or a combination of all those. Same seed, planted in different soil, yields a different color flower. They've got the same DNA, if you use that language. Same plant, same seed, all hydrangeas, but they look different based upon the soil they're planted in. And here's the thing, when you plant a hydrangea seed, you don't expect to see like thorns or roses grow. You expect, you expect to see a hydrangea grow. And that's what happens every single time. But you don't know the color until it's planted in that particular soil. And the pH level of the soil works together with the seed as it grows. And the flowers bloom in particular different colors. I think the church of Jesus is like this. I've I've been able to worship with churches all over the globe, which is a privilege and an honor. Churches in Southeast Asia, churches in China, churches in North Africa, churches in Australia, churches in rural Alberta, churches in Vancouver Island that are weird. Pretty sure one of the churches we worshipped at was a retirement community in Palm Desert. Different places. And here's the thing. They all worship Jesus. They all seek to make disciples. And it looks really different depending on the soil that they're standing on. They're different expressions of the same gospel being planted. The local church can look different. They've all got the same DNA, the same seed of the gospel. It flows from the transformed relationship people have with an, from an encounter with Jesus. They become part of his church. They seek to live that out faithfully under the authority of scripture. But it can look different. Like the rural church planter I met in China and my church planting friend in Manhattan are not going about things in the same way because they're from vastly different cultures and they live in vastly different contexts. Same gospel at work. So they're both going to worship. They're both going to celebrate communion. They're both going to baptize new believers. They're both going to enjoy the experience of being part of the community of Jesus Church. They're both going to display the fruit of the Spirit in the way that they live, the familial devotion and love to one another as members of Christ's body. They're both going to advocate for the repentance of sin, repentance from sin. They're both going to teach the Scriptures. They're going to do all the things that a church does. But if you try to go into Manhattan with the strategy that you employed in rural China, you'll find very quickly that just because you've got the same gospel doesn't mean it has the same effect. Vastly different contexts. But in the same way, Ephesians 4.4 tells us there is one body and one spirit. 
Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. There is only one church on this planet. There are just a vast array of different expressions of it in local contexts. And think about that with me. The city of Vancouver is like a microcosm of our global reality. The city of Vancouver is 23 neighborhoods plus UBC. The city of Vancouver is diverse as you move through it. It's a beautiful city filled with a beautiful diversity of people from all over the globe. And some of the neighborhoods have a different feel to them. It's the same gospel planted in different soil might produce a flower of a different color, but it will always be a church. And you go, okay, are you against large churches? No, I've been part of a large church, was sent by a large church, excited about big churches. Just don't feel particularly called to angle that direction. Oh, so you only like small churches? Well, not necessarily. Some small churches are terrible because they're not faithful to gospel. I'm about faithful churches. The elders of Christ City are about faithful churches. We love being in a city surrounded by lots of great faithful churches. It's not necessarily that they're big or that they're small that makes us bind together in partnership in the gospel. It's the expression of the faithfulness that they have toward Jesus. So do we love big churches? Yeah. Do we love small churches? Yes. What do we want to do? Well, we believe that we're called to be a network of neighborhood churches that are large enough to meet the unique demands of doing ministry in Vancouver, yet small enough to maintain community. We want to be faithful. And if that's true, then why plant a network of neighborhood churches, though? Why not just plant a bunch of independent churches in different neighborhoods? Well, we're not against that either. We think that's great. Um, Permit me another metaphor. This is a picture of an aspen grove. This is a picture of the world's largest living organism. It's an aspen grove in Utah with over 47,000 trees connected to the same root system. And when they run the kinds of tests that biologists like to run on these kind of things, they find out that all of these trees have sprung up from the ground as part of the one original parent tree. So they share the same identical genetic makeup. They're all interconnected, which means that when one area of the 106 acres that this thing covers, when one area of that aspen grove ends up in drought, it can actually persevere because it's connected to a well-watered source elsewhere. When a wildfire rips through one area of this grove, it can actually regenerate and grow back quickly because it shares the same ancient root system and root source of the areas that weren't burnt. This aspen grove is actually nicknamed Pando, which is Latin for I spread. That's our hope for Christ City. That we're a network of neighborhood churches who share a common foundation and a bunch of citywide resources that allow us to do things that we wouldn't be able to do unless we were connected to one another in the way that we are. But also that we can properly contextualize to the neighborhoods that we're planted in. The root system is implied when we talk about the network. It allows for unity and diversity. So church planting is in the DNA of Christ City. And sent and sending is the DNA of Jesus' global church. Every church was planted. I know it doesn't seem like that when you drive by the 125-year-old historic building. It's just been there your whole life. But there were a group of people 
who were sent to go and plant that church. There were a group of people who did the sending. Some are sent, some do the sending, but everybody's involved. We tell people in our membership content, when you join Christ City, you're joining a church planting church. And so when you're viewing the content that we have online in your process of becoming a covenant member of Christ City, you see this. We tell people we don't go and vote when it's time to plant another church. If you join Christ City, you're joining a church planting church, and you should just expect that by God's grace, the operative assumption here is that we're going to continue to plant churches. Our identity as the sent people of God compels us to that end. Our real encounter with the risen Jesus, it compels us to that end. The invitation into this cosmic picture of worship from the God who has revealed himself to us as he is in Revelation 4 and 5, it compels us to be a part of what he's doing. When Jesus died and rose from the grave and commissioned his disciples to go to the ends of the earth, that compels us to continue to be a part of making disciples, teaching them to obey his commands. Understanding our role in the kingdom of God as a Revelation 5 worshiping community who are also active in Matthew 28 missional discipleship compels us to continue to seek his will for what he would have us do. So as a citywide church, we would ask you to pray about how you might be involved in helping us plant Christ City Church East Vancouver in 2019 under the leadership of Jake Lefebvre. Some of you will be sent and the rest of us will do the sending but we will all be involved. And I know some of you love Jake and would prefer he stayed here. Don't tell him this. I actually like working with him too. We share an office so we'll see each other a lot. But I like it when he's here. I love being together on Sunday. I love Jake and Maisie and their three boys. There are other people who are being sent. And I love worshiping with them week to week as well. Some of the favorite people in your community group are going to leave. Don't look at it as leaving. Look at it as sending. Lay hands on them. Commission them. Trust the Spirit with the work that he's calling them to do. Christ City, can you imagine how different church history would look and how different the history of missions would look if the church in Antioch said, boy, Paul and Barnabas are great to have around here. I sure like Paul's teaching. Boy, he opens the scriptures to us and just shows us who Jesus is in a really transformative way. Maybe we should try and keep them. Let's make them an offer that they can't refuse. Let's keep them here. What if that was the impulse that they had instead of saying that they were going to be the sending people to send Paul and Barnabas out on mission? What would it look like? It'd be vastly different. William Temple said, the church is the only society that exists for the benefit of those who are not yet its members. Christ City, it's not about us. It's not about us. Two years ago, we ran a very similar campaign about sent and sending when we were planting the church in Kitsilano, and I had the joy of preaching there last Sunday, and it's amazing to see people coming together, people coming to Christ, seekers who are there who don't yet know Jesus, like some of you who are trying to figure out what the claims of Jesus mean for the way that they live their life. It's an amazing community of people. Just three things that we would ask today. Number one, would you join us in praying as we seek to plant Christ City? Um, would you join us in praying? Like not, not like right now where you just go, hey, help them, Lord, amen. 
Like, will you lean into this? We don't yet have a place to gather. Would you pray for a venue? Would you pray for that? Like every time you eat a meal and you bow your head, would you pray for that? That's what I'm saying. Like that's, that's, we'll let you know when we get it. You can stop. We'll let you know. Would you join us in praying that we would be effective and fruitful on mission as we go into the Hastings Sunrise neighborhood and plant in their church? Would some of you consider if God's calling you to be a part of it? He'll tell you. Don't worry. He'll let you know. Some of you are called to go and the rest of us are called to send, but all of us are a part of what's happening here. And then third, would you consider giving toward the $100,000 goal, the pre-launch goal that we have, so that we can set up everything we need to do Sunday morning church ministry in a different location, in a new neighborhood, that we would be effective in reaching them there? Would you join us in giving to that? Would you pray about how God would have you give? Some are sent, some do the sending, but everybody's involved. Would you stand as we respond today?